You're listening to an ACR 2021 podcast, a compilation of reports, interviews, perspectives, and panel discussions that feature the Room Now faculty and noted experts. Hope you enjoy. Hello, my name is Jeff Sparks. I'm a rheumatologist here at uh, Brigham Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. I'm privileged to have two of my uh, team members join us to here to discuss some of their work at the ACR. Um, so I have Dr. Greg McDermott, who's a second year rheumatology fellow here at Brigham and Women's Hospital, and Dr. Vanessa Kronzer, a second year rheumatology fellow at Mayo Clinic. Welcome. Thanks, Dr. Sparks. Yes, thanks for having us. It's an impromptu uh, Team Sparks meeting, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I actually really wanted to highlight the trainee experience and certainly your work. Um, so I think first, maybe we can just talk about the abstracts that, that you've presented. And I think it comes from a, this, a similar data set, the Mass General Brigham Biobank. So maybe Greg, do you wanna tell us about the overall data set? And then we can talk about the abstracts after that. Sure. So the Mass General Brigham Biobank is a clinical biospecimen collection and clinical data collection program. It was started around 2010 and has now recruited over 100,000 subjects throughout our healthcare system who have submitted biosamples and have linked electronic health record data in our system. And it's been a great resource for doing studies because many of those patients have available genetic information linked to their clinical records. And it's a really powerful research tool that um, facilitates kind of asking and answering questions very quickly um, using their database. Yep, so out of that huge sample, we've identified every RA patient. Uh, I believe it's over 2,000 RA patients that we've been doing many studies with. I'm sure you guys will think of even more options in the future. Um, so Vanessa, you and I, we've actually been working together for several years. I, I mm -hmm. met Vanessa, actually it was virtual, I think, just from an email. Um, when yeah. A, a med student at WashU, and then they, they were lucky enough to recruit you to Mayo Clinic. Uh, but maybe you could talk about some of your prior work and then certainly how that dovetailed into our work together with the MGB Biobank. Sure. So when I came to Mayo as a resident, I guess five years ago, I discovered that Mayo had a biobank called the Mayo Clinic Biobank that had been an untapped resource in rheumatology. And so I took over looking into what data was available and what we could find that might be interesting, starting with rheumatoid arthritis, because it's one of our most common autoimmune diseases. And we started with lung disease because Dr. Madison, who was here at uh, Mayo at the time, had told me that he had a suspicion that the lungs were involved with rheumatoid arthritis. And so my first study looked at allergies as well as asthma and passive smoke exposure and rheumatoid arthritis. And we found significant associations with those, which supported the Dr. Madison's suspicion as well as the rheumatology community's suspicion that the lungs and RA are linked. And on the basis of that, I got a grant to work with collaborators in Sweden at the Karolinska Institute studying respiratory disease and RA. And Dr. Sparks has been involved from the very first project there in the Mayo Biobank. And we've subsequently branched out to projects using the Mass General Brigham Biobank, as well as your brass cohort at Brigham. So a lot of different avenues of answering these questions about lung disease and RA. Well, great. I'll mention Vanessa is an award-winning, I think the RRF uh, awarded her with the Schiff Award for her work with, uh, we'll talk about here. Uh, and she also got a grant from our Verity program, which is a NIAMS funded P30 grant. So 
Uh, maybe you can tell us about the abstract that you presented. Uh, I think it was yesterday. Yeah, so the abstract that we presented here at this year's ACR was about our findings from the Mass General Brigham Biobank on lung disease and RA. In, in the Sweden study that I mentioned, we had discovered that respiratory groups were associated with increased risk of RA. So chronic lower diseases like asthma again, but then upper ac acute, um, upper chronic, lower acute, all these groups were associated, but we didn't study specific respiratory diseases before. Um, so then in the Mass General Brigham Biobank, we wanted to see were specific respiratory diseases also associated with RA besides asthma, which is one that was known. And indeed, we found that specific diseases within those groups were also associated with RA, including sinusitis and pharyngitis, which are um, novel diseases associated with RA, and in fact, even just linking the upper airway with rheumatoid arthritis is a novel finding as well. I think it extends our mucosal understanding of rheumatoid arthritis and extends it to the upper airway. Yeah, so tell us about the mucosal paradigm and how this might extend it. Yeah, so we, uh, we the rheumatology community, has been finding over the last several decades that uh, several exposures related to the mucosa, including periodontitis in, in the mouth, um, lower airway diseases like asthma, um, gut microbiome exposures in the, in the gut mucosa, and even there are some studies suggesting vaginal mucosa might be associated with RA. So those areas had been studied and, and shown to have associations previously, but the upper airway, including the pharynx and larynx, that had not been studied before. Great. So there's uh, more more opportunity for the to understand different avenues where RA might start. Now, mention this mm -hmm. paper was actually recently accepted in Journal of Rheumatology, which is our first paper out of this data set. So we're really happy mm -hmm. about that. Mm -hmm. uh, so, Greg, I'll turn to you. And I'll also mention that Greg uh, was accepted as a T32 fellow on the Comet program and is also part of the Oracore program with Dr. Jeffrey Katz, one of our colleagues. So you work with two Jeffs. Congrats. Time. Yeah. Uh, he also did the program for clinical effectiveness this summer at the Harvard School of Public Health. And he's also doing um, the clinical translational research program through the Harvard Medical School. So he's quite busy as well. Uh, but Greg, I think you've got a couple abstracts looking kind of the flip of the question. Uh, Vanessa's looking at risk factors for RA. You're really looking mm -hmm. at things that happen after RA. So I wonder if you could just tell us about um, how we've been phenotyping the lung, and, and then we'll go into the abstracts after that. Sure. So going back to the Mass General Brigham, Brigham Biobank, um, and you mentioned that we'd identified all the RA patients in that data set. We then looked at all the, all the RA patients who had CT chest imaging performed and looked to see if they had evidence of interstitial lung disease, if they had evidence of bronchiectasis or other lung diseases on those scans. In addition, we performed clinical reviews of all those patients to look if they had clinical diagnoses of any lung diseases, and also look for patients who had lung biopsies or autopsies to see if there was any lung pathology that hinted at lung diseases in those patients. And we had expert radiologists review all these scans to really blinded to what happened in the clinic to understand, you know, sort of a phenotypic picture of whether they have uh, interstitial lung disease, as well as bronchiectasis. So huge undertaking. And I think we just started that just over a year ago. So uh, it's great that we have these two products 
Um, so maybe you can tell us about the uh, RAILD abstract first. This one has gotten a lot of traction on Twitter for sure. Yeah, so, th so that project was looking at the associations of the MUC5B promoter variant with RA features and timing of RAILD. So the MUC5B promoter variant is a relatively common genetic polymorphism, um, common in some populations, up to more than 10% of, of European populations, for example. And it has been associated with RAILD um, in previous studies, but no one really uh, had intensely investigated um, its effect on RA features as well as the timing of RAILD within the RA disease course. So those were the questions that we were looking to examine. And we found in our study, so of the RA patients um, in the biobank who had genetic data, 155 of those had the MUC5B genotype. And they, those patients um, were more, had higher odds of not only RAILD, but also RAILD early, earlier in their RA disease course within two years of RA onset, and also tended to have a bit older age of RA onset. So they, were, they had higher odds of RA diagnosis after age 55 which were um, novel findings that hadn't been reported before. So it sounds like this genetic factor puts you at risk of having ILD very early in the RA course, but also might make the RA present later as far as older age. Is that, is that the summary? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a fair summary. So it seemed like it was, um, although the RAILD may have been occurring at the same time in those patients, it was early in the disease course, but with a, often a later onset of RA. And do you so think it makes the RA present later, or do you think that it just re represents a different phenotype of RA? I think that that's a really great question and, and an area that needs more research. I think that the there's a possibility that it that the in patients with the MUC5B promoter variant, there's a maybe a different pathogenic mechanism or a different pathway that's contributing to both RA pathogenesis as well mm -hmm. as ILD pathogenesis. Yeah, and I think that this interplay, as you mentioned already, with the um, mucous membrane, the the mucus um, mucosal origins hypothesis, and mm -hmm. aging, all of these are really intricately linked to both RA but also ILD risk, and and mm -hmm. I think a lot more work, um, a lot more exciting work needs to be done in that area. Yeah. So there's been a lot of interest in airways and rheumatoid arthritis. Vanessa mentioned her um, her study previously that had showed asthma as an RA risk factor. Uh, we'd actually looked at COPD as well. The flip side mm -hmm. here is bronchiectasis, something that we've known as an RA manifestation for a long time, but uh, we studied that in the MGB Biobank. Can you tell us about that abstract? Sure, yes. So, so as you mentioned, I think that bronchiectasis is being increasingly recognized as a significant extra-articular disease manifestation of RA. And um, the prevalence of bronchiectasis has a really wide range depending on what, what studies you look at, anywhere less than 1% of RA patients to more than 50%, again, depending on the study and the methods they used and exactly the population that was being investigated. So, um, and I think one of the big challenges with bronchiectasis is that it comes in different flavors and kind of a spectrum of disease. It can happen on its own, what we term isolated bronchiectasis, or it can occur in the context of other lung diseases, such as interstitial lung disease, where the parenchymal lung disease really pulls the airways apart and leads to that bronchiectasis. And what we wanted to investigate was whether or not that the, whether or not that isolated bronchiectasis may be a distinct entity and what are risk factors for isolated bronchiectasis occurring in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. 
So in order to investigate that, we did a case control study and we looked at cases with RA and bronchiectasis without any evidence of interstitial lung disease on that um, expert radiology reviewed scan that you mentioned and compared those to controls without who had RA but no RA related lung diseases. So no bronchiectasis and no interstitial lung disease. And we found that the cases with, um, in, in this case control study, RA bronchiectasis was associated with um, seropositivity and higher, tighter autoantibodies conferred a higher odds. We also saw that it was associated with older age of RA onset, longer RA duration, and also lower BMI at RA diagnosis, which was kind of an unexpected finding. It's interesting, all those risk factors you were mentioning, dovetailing off that are risk factors for RAILD, with the exception of the obesity versus low weight. Um, Dr. Sparks and I had done a study on RAILD risk factors recently, and obesity was a risk factor there, which is why I remember going through your abstract and we talked about how it was surprising finding that the low weight was a risk factor for bronchiectasis. Right. Yeah, I think it's, a re again, a really thought-provoking finding, and it, it makes me wonder whether or not in, in thin people or people of normal BMI is the lung an especially important site for them for development of uh, autoantibodies or generating a pro-inflammatory state that contributes to lung disease and RA. Um, mm -hmm. Again, we need more investigation in those areas, but you're, mm -hmm. you're totally right that it's, it's uh, in contrast to what is seen with obesity as a risk factor for RA and RAILD um, in general. Mm -hmm. It really highlights that they probably are distinct entities. Mm -hmm. uh, the other interesting thing that we found was not associated is there was absolutely no association of smoking with bronchiectasis, which was oh, that is fascinating, surprising. So, it, mm -hmm. and we actually looked at MUC5B as well, and there was no association. So it really is <laughs> probably a very different entity. Mm -hmm. All right. Mm -hmm. Well. Um, I'm glad we could give you guys a platform to talk about your abstracts. You usually get to, you know, stand by your poster and interact with people, <laughs> which could be a good or a bad thing. Yeah. Um, but actually, both of you are at the same stage and have, mm -hmm. during your fellowship, ACR has been virtual the entire time. Mm -hmm. So I just wonder if you could give your impression about the virtual experience and what you're looking forward to next year in Philadelphia. Maybe, Vanessa, you want to go? Sure, I can go first. So I did have the privilege of going to an in-person ACR as a resident, and that obviously was a fantastic experience, and um, everybody's been talking about how they missed that. That being said, I, I'm not used to it like everybody else is, and I will say I think there are a lot of positives with the virtual as well that maybe have been less stated, but I think the fact, for example, I've been watching videos at 1.25 or 1.5 speed retroactively, oh, and I can see quite a bit more in the same <laughs> amount of time, which is really fun. Um, and also the fact that it's on demand, like you can watch from home, you can wear pajamas. I haven't actually worn pajamas, but yoga pants and <laughs> um, yeah, there's a lot of opportunities. You can go mow the lawn in between the sessions to wake yourself up a little bit. And I, I think there are a lot of positives too. You can listen to me on 1.5 speed too. Vanessa. <laughs> yeah. to speed it up. I understand how you roll now. How about you, Greg? What are you uh, looking forward to next year? So I'd agree with Vanessa, actually. I actually also had a chance to attend before fellowship um, to the in-person one in Atlanta. And I think that it's there's a pluses and minuses to the virtual format. Um, on the one hand, as a speaking as a trainee or early, early stage person, that one that I went to in person, I did, I was very fortunate to present an oral presentation there, but it was on, I think, the fourth day. And I felt like I was very nervous and kind of anticipating that the whole time. 
And it wasn't until I was done with that, that I was able to kind of really focus on the other, attending other talks and seeing other posters and really fully focused on that. Um, whereas with the virtual format, you can kind of record and get everything presented and then I think focus on the, the conference as it's happening, which is nice. And then I agree that it's the on-demand um, access, the ability to watch things after is really nice as well. But I definitely, I think, miss or can see the advantages of the networking and the in-person aspects. And I look forward to hopefully being back in person and seeing everybody together next year. Well, hopefully we'll have the uh, best part of both, both experiences next year. And that's a good point about you know recording your talk. It's a little bit annoying to do it so much earlier, but it's kind of nice just to have it done when it's done. Because I, I remember working on my presentations during planes, maybe sometimes even started them on a plane. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, definitely celebrating together. Uh, you guys have had an amazing ACR and fellowship so far. It's been my privilege to work with you. This isn't the end. You're still going to work with me, I hope. <laughs> yeah, it's been a privilege to work with you, Team Sparks. Oh, uh, thank you. Yeah, thanks, uh, Jeff. You're welcome. All right, thanks for your attention. We'll look forward to our next video and to the next ACR. Hi, this is Dr. Robert Chow reporting live from ACR 2021 for RoomNow. I'd like to share with you a really interesting abstract on psoriatic arthritis, um, actually focusing on the treatment of anemia. And this was abstract 1331, which was a post hoc analysis of guselcomab, which is an IL-23 uh, inhibitor on the treatment of anemia um, in two pooled phase three studies for the treatment of psoriatic arthritis. In this study, over a thousand patients were analyzed and they found that at baseline patients with anemia had worse disease activity with more swollen and tender joints, higher, higher CRP, and increased fatigue than patients without. The guselcomab treatment groups showed an increase in hemoglobin levels for men and women, especially those anemic at baseline. Um, however, uh, they noticed no change in placebo group. And uh, they did see that after the placebo group switched to guselcomab treatment, there was an increase in hemoglobin levels. They also noted that anemia resolution was more likely in men and patients with a lower, lower CRP at baseline. And overall, uh, they found that anemia improvement was associated with improved clinical status compared to patients with persistent anemia. And I think, um, you know, we all know that uh, our chronic conditions can be associated with anemia of chronic inflammation. Um, but you know, it's very interesting to see the real life data and especially the baseline data that showed patients who were anemic with psoriatic arthritis had increased fatigue. And fatigue is obviously one of those uh, very difficult to treat measures for us. And I think it just shines light that as we're treating our patients, especially with psoriatic arthritis, we're not just treating the arthritis itself, but the patient as a whole. And perhaps the correct choice in treatment will lead to not just better uh, and improved arthritis, but uh, overall well-being and improvement, and especially in fatigue for our patients. So thanks for tuning in uh, for live coverage of ACR 2021. Please visit roomnow.com and follow me on Twitter at Dr. RBC. Thanks. Hi, this is Eric Dang. Uh, we just finished a great um, oral abstract session on day three of ACR 2021 Convergence. Uh, I'm joined here with Nathan Denbruder. Uh, from the Netherlands. He gave a great presentation. It was abstract uh, 1443, 
on the long-term effectiveness of ultra low dose rituximab and RA. Uh, congratulations, that you did a really nice job of that talk. Can you tell Thank me you. what is ultra low dose rituximab? Yeah, so it's it kind of an awkward term, right? And we think so too, but <laughs> we had to call it that because um, you have the standard dose rituximab, the registered dose, which is two infusions of a thousand milligrams, uh, 14 days apart. And then there was also uh, two infusions of 500 milligrams or one of a thousand milligrams. And that was already called uh, low dose in the literature or standard low dose. Um, so we had to go with something that was lower than low dose <laughs> to, uh, um, yeah, to talk about 500 or 200 milligrams for six months. And so we came up with ultra low dose, but uh, yeah, it's kind of an awkward term actually. <laughs> and um, tell me, tell me what, what did you find with this lowest dose of thyrotoxamab? Yeah, so um, what we found was um, that in patients who uh, participated in our redo trial, where we first investigated these low doses, um, we followed them up for another two, two and a half years. And we saw that in those patients, first of all, almost everyone remained on rituximab. Um, the disease activity remained very low in uh, DAS28 of around 2.3, 2.4 on average. And uh, we also saw that 70% uh, of patients uh, after three years uh, were still receiving a dose of less than 1,000 milligrams per year. So that was uh, 500 milligrams per six months in about 40% and 200 milligrams per six months in about 30%. So we saw that many patients actually did quite well on uh, ultra-low dose rituximab. Yeah, it was interesting how, how high the retention was across the board that it almost makes it hard to compare. Yeah. Um, I think you had seven, seven patients, which is 6%. Um, only that, that switch therapy? Yeah, we were actually quite surprised at that as well. Um, and even a little bit worried, like, um, are these patients not secretly in drug-free remission, but we just are still giving them drugs, right? Um, but the interesting thing uh, to look at is that actually the patients who discontinued rituximab uh, for a while during the study, um, Almost all of them, uh, after a year or maybe a bit longer, um, the disease flared up again and they needed treatment. Uh, most then restarted rituximab treatment and a, a, a few um, were part of the group that switched to another drug. So that kind of reassured us that, yeah, these patient, patients do actually still need to be treated. Um, one, one thing that did come up um, at, you know, afterwards was and in the Q&A was about CD19 levels. Um, mm -hmm. it, it sounds like that's something that you've been tracking uh, across the board with all the patients. Do you know how many of them um, went down to undetectable levels after starting rituximab? Um, yes, uh, in, the, in the original Vridu um, trial publication in Lancet Rheumatology, you can find all the data on CD19 counts that we have, I do believe. I'm not sure, maybe it actually didn't make that paper now that I'm thinking about it. But um, yeah, in all groups, uh, just after the infusion, um, there was basically no measurable CD19 uh, positive B cells left. And we did see it come back slightly quicker in the lower dose groups. Um, but uh, just after the infusion, it was all gone for all patients. So the, the, the dose was, was low enough, but... Um, high enough that it can, it can still wipe out the B cells effectively. Yeah, and there's actually a very interesting study, uh, I believe it is in healthy volunteers, where they, they tried really the lowest, lowest dose to 
uh, end up with no detectable uh, B cells uh, peripherally. And they ended up doing something like, uh, I think one milligram per square meter. So like two milligrams uh, of rituximab. And that was already enough in most people to get completely get rid of circulating peripheral B cells. So that's suggesting that we might even go still lower. Right. And, um, you know, um, you, you brought up in the, in the talk that the safety data didn't really show much of a difference, um, yeah. but maybe there's some underreporting in that. Do, do you have any plans? What, what's the next steps? Are, are you planning to, to follow? Um, and how do you plan to investigate that further? Um, specifically for the safety, uh, we do not at this moment have any specific plans for rituximab specifically. We are looking at some other things more in general on our RA population. Um, the main thing with this low-dose rituximab, there's two things we're looking to do still is first look at how this goes when we implement it into clinical practice, which we've been doing for a while now, but um, soon we also hope to be looking at those results. And secondly is uh, a colleague of mine is going to start a study on subcutaneous 200 milligram doses of rituximab and see if we can use those uh, instead of the 200 milligram really small infusion so that patients uh, will have an even easier time getting the drug. Yeah, I, I think certainly, you know, in the next step, thinking about, you know, rituximab and the, the following talk after you is was looking at rituximab outcomes and COVID. So it will definitely yeah. be to see what this means for vaccine responses, patient outcomes, limiting the, the dose of rituximab can certainly um, be very helpful in our patients. Yeah, yeah, we think we think so too. And uh, a coworker of mine is also um, doing a study on the vaccination response. And because we have these low dose of ultra low dose reduction at patients, which I don't think any other center in the world has, um, we can look at the dose response relation, um, whether people respond better to vaccination with lower doses of reduction at. And that's currently under submission. So those results should be available soon. Well, okay. thank you so much for your time. It is uh, late in the Netherlands. So I appreciate you um, hanging on to, to join us and um, definitely encourage everyone to look into his abstract further. It's 1443. Um, it was part of a great across the board oral abstract session. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for inviting me and your enthusiasm. Absolutely. And, um, you know, check out Room Now for a lot more information about, you know, um, all the other great studies across the board that have been presented during this convergence 2021. Thank you very much. Thank you. Will do. Hi, this is Dr. Robert Chow reporting live from ACR 2021 for Room Now. Um, I'd like to share with you some of the best abstracts uh, focusing on spondylarthritis here at day three of ACR 2021. And today's theme really focuses on the extraarticular manifestations of uh, especially axial spondylarthritis. And uh, there's two abstracts I want to shine. Um, and the first one's 1324. And this was a study looking at uveitis in over 300 patients with axial spondylarthritis. They found that uh, at least 14% uh, of patients with axial spondylarthritis developed at least one episode of uveitis. Typically, these episodes were acute, anterior, and unilateral in uh, roughly 93% of the cases. Uh, these patients were also noted to have a higher prevalence of HLA-B27. This actually reminds me of a talk from uh, Room Now Live earlier this year. Uh, where Dr. Robert Wang 
discussed uveitis and mentioned that actually all uveitis patients with uh, hypopion will be B27 positive. The second abstract is abstract 1311, which looked at the prevalence of psoriasis in axial spinal arthritis patients and a French six-year prospective uh, cohort desire. And over six years, they found that the prevalence of psoriasis increased from 16% to 26%. And they also found that psoriasis may appear at any point. Um, they also found actually that psoriasis did not appear to affect any axial spondyl arthritis outcomes in terms of functional capacity and disease activity. I think these two abstracts are very important for us because um, sometimes we need to step aside and uh, not forget that the diseases that we treat, especially spondyl arthritis, have a lot of extraarticular manifestations. I try to make it a uh, personal uh, endeavor to uh, ask these kind of questions at every patient visit, especially patients who are relatively quiet in terms of disease activity, to make sure we're not missing any episodes of uveitis or new occurrences of psoriasis. So thanks for tuning in. Um, for live coverage of ACR 2021, visit roomnow.com and follow me on Twitter at Dr. RBC. Thanks.